M&K Talk YA now presents The Girl in the Tower, Part 2, from the Winter Night Trilogy by Catherine Arden. Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we finished the second book in the Winter Night Trilogy by Catherine Arden. We finished The Girl in the Tower. One book left. I know. I'm so glad this is a trilogy because I am like not ready to leave these characters yet. And I think we ended in a pretty cool place. And so I'm glad that we have a little bit more left and it's not just a duology. Sometimes I do not feel that way about trilogies. Sometimes I'm like very ready for them to be over, but the second book was different enough from the first that I'm thinking the third one will be different as well, and I'm excited for it. Yeah, and I have that same feeling. I think I might have said this after the first book, but it almost could end here. Like, it feels complete enough. There's still some questions, and I'm still interested in the characters in the world, but it's not... Sometimes the second book especially, I think, feels like such a middle book Mm -hmm. where... It just, like, everything drags out. Like, this felt like a engaging enough story. Like, even if you just read this book on its own. It's a contained story. Without the first one. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's nice. That's it. That has to be so hard to do, too. I can't even imagine. Well, yeah, and it's really cool how there were characters returned and some of the relationships from before or, you know, like, there was definitely stuff from the first one, but, again, completely different setting. There were a lot of new characters. There was, like, a new quote-unquote villain. There, mm-hmm. Like, we cared about people because we had seen them before, but it really felt, I mean, it was just familiar enough to be, like, fun to revisit. And it wasn't old. Like, we were introduced to Olga and Sasha in the first book, but, like, very briefly, and so yeah. it was nice to have a book that kind of focused on them because we wanted more. And I, I hope we see all the siblings in the last book. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, because I kind of miss um, Aloysia and I forget her other brother's name. The half-sister or whatever. What's her name? And Arena. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I for, That one brother who like got married, I don't really care about him. Yeah, but I totally forgot about the him. The other two brothers <laughs> and the two sisters. I like. so okay, so we left off. Where did... Yeah. With, when did we stop? Um, so we left off on the chapter, The Lord from Sarai. And we learned that um, a new ambassador was coming from the court of the Khan. And his name was Chalube. And... Looked familiar. <laughs> yeah. He was saying that the Grand Prince has to, like, pay a tax now. If they don't, there's, like, a general who's going to lead an army up and attack Moscow. Yeah. But we learn he's the leader of the bandits that we saw before. Yes. And that is kind of shocking because, like, how, how did, how would a bandit king set himself up as an ambassador? Um, and Vasya is the only one who recognizes him. Because she's the only one who saw him the first time. Right. And of course, no one believes her because she's a girl. No, they don't even know she's a girl yet. Well, they, her, Sasha doesn't believe well, her. Well, I guess the only yeah. people who she tells, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Um, so that was a huge bummer that her own brother didn't believe her, but... To be fair, that was a big accusation. Like, if she hadn't been 100% certain, like, that's not something that you can just be like, you remind me a lot of someone that I met once in the dark woods (laughs) while under attack. 
But, you yeah. know, like, I mean, it, it kind of is a big deal. Yes, you wish he believed her, but it's not something that you can just, like, take too lightly either. And also, Sasha knows that she's lying about how her father died. Because he talked to Constantine yeah, so about it and, he, like, didn't get the full truth from either of them. So he's already a little wary. Can we... This is, like, jumping ahead, but everyone's finished this book, hopefully, when they're listening. So we then find out that our red-haired man, Cassian, Mm -hmm. was in cahoots with Chelubi. Mm -hmm. And I am still confused by this plan and why (laughs) he came and, like, I get what happened, but I still don't get why it happened. In terms of the prep work, in terms of Chelebi pretending to be a, or acting like a bandit and stealing these women and burning these towns down, and Cassian coming to the prince and saying, hey, he's burning my towns down too, I want to help you. Like, part of it was like to, was it just to like get in with the grand prince, but it seemed like a really elaborate way to do it. I think it was a way to get in with the grand prince to like get on Dimitri's good side and be like, oh, I'm helping you you know, defend yourself against these horrible bandits. And I think he also had Chalubi attack his own lands to kind of throw off the sense. So, like, no one would suspect him if his own lands were also being destroyed. So then I still had a question about that. Okay. Were his lands actually destroyed? Or was this just, like, a story he told because he knew that the other people's lands were being... Did we ever go to his lands? Oh, no. that's true. May. Well, okay, so <laughs> the other big thing we learn is that our friend Cassian is actually friend? the sorcerer. <laughs> the, the big thing we learn is that nobody is who they say they are, <laughs> including our heroine. <laughs> Chalubi's actually a bandit prince. Cassian is actually a sorcerer. Cassian's yeah. actually a girl, and everyone knows now. So, okay, so Cassian isn't who he says he is either. So he is the sorcerer whose name I can't pronounce, Cassian. Kasche, and he appears in a lot of Russian folktales um, as, like, the evil sorcerer. Yeah, the evil immortal sorcerer. Right, because he was the one we learned about in the first book who, um, he's the one who preserves his life kind of like a horcrux. Like, he takes portions of his life force and, like, hides them in various objects, so he lives forever. Um, Wait, when did we do that in the first book? I think that was in the first one, wasn't it? When I was talking about the different Russian folk tales. Yeah, that sounds familiar now that you're saying it. But yes, you're right. I forgot about that, that we talked about that. Yeah, because he was the one, wasn't that the one that they mentioned in this book too, where it was like a needle inside of a egg inside, egg of, inside a, of a mm-hmm. rabbit inside of a tree or something like that. Exactly. Okay. So, so I don't even know if he really has lands. All I got from the whole bandit thing, capturing girls, was he was having the bandit king target girls because he wanted to find a girl with a sight to bind to him, to keep his life force going. Which I also had a question about. Why did he need to do that? Because he still had Tamara. Like, I guess, why did he suddenly need to come out? Like, I thought he maybe was just doing that because he wanted to, like, rule Moscow and he wanted more power. But then... It just all the pieces weren't fitting together, and part of me thinks that we're gonna get it's gonna click in book three, oh, like some of the groundwork's being laid. But but then why did he t- take her niece at the end? Why did he take um, Maria? Yeah, that's where I was confused. Like obviously, or not obviously, but it seemed like he at least felt like he needed to 
put his, the necklace around someone with the sight, and it seemed like the same thing that Morosco had done to Vasya, but I didn't get what prompted him come, if he's been immortal for this, like, I didn't really get why. He needed another girl. Yeah, what happened this month or whatever that sparked this. <laughs> That's a good question because we see Morosco in this second half too and he's starting to fade but I thought he was fading because uh, Vasya took off his necklace and was like I don't want to be your slave anymore essentially like I don't want to be bound to you and I thought that was why he was fading. So that does beg the question like why is the sorcerer needing another girl if he already has one to bind himself to? Yeah I actually have a lot of questions that I didn't necessarily have while reading it but now that I'm thinking about it I'm confused (laughs) I mean I think okay here's here's another question I think he has his own I think he has lots of different objects that have his life force in them though don't you because like when Vasya destroys the necklace he was going to put on Mara that's when all his age came running back to him right he still didn't die but he like became an old withered man so maybe you need multiple horcruxes <laughs> to stay alive. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. What were you going to say? Okay. Well, my other question is, so he's immortal, but he could die. Or at least he did die once they destroyed the two necklaces, mm-hmm. right? Or is he still not I, dead? Oh, well, I guess we'll find out in the next book. But he seems pretty dead because Tamara died. Okay. I, I think he died. But who knows? But the bear, why didn't we just find a way to kill him? Why did we just put him to sleep? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I have no idea. I guess... Okay. I guess because he was a different character and different characters in folklore have to be dealt with in different ways. Like, when I don't understand something, I'm just like, whatever, it's the folklore. Like... You know, the sorcerer yeah. has to be killed by killing all his horror cruxes, and the bear has to be put to sleep. Like, I will say, I think I got some of my predictions right, but they weren't exactly what I thought was going to happen, even though what I said was right again. But the big question I still have, well, they mentioned there were a couple of moments near the end where narration was like, if only she had heard the answer to that question, or if only she had thought to mm. ask this, like foreshadowing things about something that's mm-hmm. to come. And we still don't know who sent Lady Midnight to check on her three times, right? Right. So who is this other person out there? Because the bear's asleep, Koschi or whatever, what's the red-headed man? The sorcerer is gone. The sorcerer is gone. So someone's left. Who's the next one? Yeah. And how are, are they bigger and badder than these other two? Or are they just, part of me thinks it's just some someone immortal and mischievous. Maybe it's Baga, Baga Yagba. Would that make sense? Maybe. I sort of thought that her grandma was going to be Baba Yaga oh. or something, but I guess... But she wasn't, right? Because her grandma no. was the ghost. Yeah. So, so what about her great-grandma, though? Because I still <laughs> am confused by... So the sorcerer did fall in love with a woman, mm-hmm. and then the woman died, and then he f- ran into her grandma, right? No. I think... When he was talking about how he loved a woman and she died, I think he was talking about Tamara because he fell in love with her and then she fled from him. Like, she ran from him and that's why they found her, like, riding her horse into Moscow and that's why she married 
the prince so quickly because she was like trying to get away from him. Well, that's what I thought at first. But okay, here's something that Morosco tells Vasya near the end. Mm. He said, Cassian was the prince of a far country gifted with sight who wished to shape the world to his will. But there were some things even he could not control. He loved a woman and when she died, he begged me for her life. That was long ago. I do not know what happened then, for he found a way to set his life apart from his flesh to keep my hand from him. Forgot somehow that he could die, and so did not. Tamara oh. lived with her mother alone. It is said that Cassian came to her house one day to buy a horse. Cassian and Tam- Tamara fell in love and fled together. Then they disappeared until Tamara appeared in Moscow. Oh. Which makes it sound like there was a first woman. Yeah, right? it does. But then, I, but then that made me more confused. And then to your point, so it does seem like... Tamara ran away from him, mm-hmm. but somehow he still had himself immortal in her necklace. Or I guess maybe that could have been something that he gave her before she ran away. Yeah, I would think so. Because she probably didn't know about the necklace. Like, he wouldn't have told her what he was going to do with it. Kind of similar to how Vasya didn't know that yeah. Mor- Morosko was using her and holding her with the power of the necklace. But yeah, I feel like there were a couple of references to Tamara's mother. Mm. And if were to believe that the site is, like, carried in the maternal line, at least to some extent, because Vasya's grandma had it, and her mom had a very weak version of it, and her niece has it. Okay, wait, so, but remind me, is Baba Yaga a bad guy? I think it's like you said, it's like a... That, like, mischievous, could be bad, could be good. Yeah. out for their own. Okay. Okay, because I do want to see her at yeah, some point. Yeah, me too. But do you think she's going to be, like, is she, I guess she's in a lot of these stories, so maybe she is, like, powerful enough to be the one. Controlling everything? I, I think so. And I think we're also going to see um, the Firebird in the next book because, oh yeah, ugh, I think my favorite scene in this half was the horse race between Vasya and Cassian. Oh my goodness. I did not expect him to pull off her hood and I should have seen that coming I didn't expect it either because because he was so weird because he was like he was like into her and seemed like he was in love with her and then like you you knew he knew that she was a girl but I didn't think that he I I didn't know didn't think he was a bad guy honestly for a while but that was such an awful scene. But I and I don't like the part where he like rips off her hood and then like takes her clothes off in front of everyone. Oh my goodness, yeah. That was awful. But I did really like the horse race and this golden mare that he like showed up on and then we realized she is like Vasya's horse, Nightingale, but she's not a nightingale, she's a firebird. <laughs> <laughs> like the opposite, yes. And I liked whenever she, um, Vasya, like, frees the mare and she, like, takes the bridle off and she releases the firebird and the firebird immediately sets everything on fire. <laughs> I know. Wow. Yeah, that was quite the sequence of events. <laughs> so I think we're definitely going to see um, a little bit more of the firebird in the next book. So I obviously didn't love how Cassian handled the race part, mm-hmm. but I was, he was like that evil conniving that I actually kind of respect from like the political standpoint, like turning mm. her brother and her brother-in-law were both turned against the grand prince by associating with Vasya's lie. And by exposing that he was able to like get so like, luckily it failed, but it was like a good power move. It really was. And it was interesting that um, Olga saw it all. Yeah. Like she immediately caught onto it because especially like after, um, after Cassian 
reveals that Vassie's a girl. Everyone wants to like keep her under lock and key, and he sends her right to Olga because yep. Cassian knows that if he'll associate, yeah, yeah. He, he like wanted to associate Vassia with Olga and her husband and basically get everyone out of the way so that he could arise as the only player left in the game. So he like he was very clever in the way he displaced Sasha and Olga's husband. And I love that Olga saw it. And even though even though I expected her cover to be blown and people to find out she was a girl, I did not see it coming like that. No, me either. That was awful. I just feel so bad for Vasia. Like, oh my god, it's just one bad piece of luck after another. Like, if you think about everything she has put up with and dealt with, it's too much. Like, I feel so bad for her. I agree. And you really can't empathize. Like, the story is told well where, I mean, like, you feel the same, like, loss of independence that, she, or, you know, like, I feel like mm-hmm. so much of those, like, really big emotions, even though the pacing is still pretty fast and things are happening and changing, I still feel like you get those big emotional moments with her. Absolutely. And even, like, whenever Dimitri found out that she was a girl and how he just immediately lost all respect for her even though they fought bandits together and he loved her when she was Vasily um yeah and like to feel that level of like betrayal and just how could you not just feel like you're so worthless if people are constantly treating you like that it's so awful what about when her sister was in childbirth and Morosco showed up and she basically or he was saying, one of you is going to die, either you or the baby. Mm-hmm. And Olga says, well, obviously, my baby has to live. Like, no problem. Mm-hmm. And Vastia can't accept that and pulls her back to life. And then the baby dies. And that moment between the sisters and with everything else going yeah. on. Ugh. That was, t- I felt so bad. It, it was a terrible scene between the sisters. Well, and... And even though they're talking again, there's definitely damage to that relationship. Absolutely. And, and we also kind of saw it coming a little bit. Because um, before Olga yeah. had the baby, she was furious with Fasia for this disguise. And she was furious with her, like, for her own safety. Because she was like, listen, if you get caught, you will be sent to a convent or you will be tried as a witch. And then she was also like, and if the prince decides that I had a hand in any of this... Like, they will put me in a convent, too. They will take my children away. And she was like, I I will denounce you before I let that happen. So she basically already sold her, like, I will pick my children over you. This isn't, this is no contest. So. Well, and I think she should pick her children over her sister. Like, like, that's a, it's hard to be given to have it come down to that choice. But I feel like she respected that decision. It was a whole nother level to say, I pick my child over myself. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because she has two living children. And I think that's where for Vasya because she's always been blamed for her mother's death because her mother had her and died in the childbirth. I think there was like another layer of that involved too, where she was like, you can't, you need to be here for your living. Ch-. Like that was just an interesting choice. Cause it was her sister tried to make the same choice that her mother did, but Vasya didn't let that happen. And if, that had happened with her mother, then she would be the dead baby, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, but you can also see, like, Olga's theory, where she's like, I told you I would pick my children over you and and over myself, like, over anything. And she yeah. kind of robbed her of that decision. 
Um, well, and it was her choice, right? And it was her choice, yeah. Yeah. And it do- it feels selfish. And I think it was selfish even if there were other people who also benefited from it. Like, she wasn't in the moment saying, like, your daughter needs you more than this baby needs Like, she didn't really right. go through that whole thought process. I think selfishly she didn't want a- her sister to die. Yeah. Ugh, but what a decision. <sighs> yeah. But I did, I loved, I'm so glad that I did the research I did last week because it was kind of playing out in the background of the whole second half of this book. And mm. having the context of some of that, I think, I mean, I think I would have understood the story without it, but it was kind of fun to like see some of those elements that we, or that I had talked about last week appearing yeah. in the second half. With Butter Week, we learned so much more about like the traditions involved with it in this half, Yeah, which is cool. Uh, should we talk about Constantine? Everyone's least favorite character. I- My second favorite scene was when Bastia kicks him in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good scene. I still like, I don't understand why he was there this time. I mean, I'm kind of glad he was. And I'm glad that he didn't have a bigger role than he did. Because it, again, like, was this sort of fun nod to the first book and like made sense if anyone was going to have that. Like, he was the one who had to play that role. I was glad it was mm-hmm. a smaller role. But the other part of me is like, dude, move on. <laughs> I know. I know. And, and and I don't even remember like where he ended up by the end of the book. All, all I remembered was him just like crawling around on his hands and knees after he was kicked in the crotch. And I don't. I like. And he, he showed up at the palace when she's getting all the horses out or something. Like right after that scene before she goes into the tower. And oh, right. they have a moment. And she's basically like, next time I see you, I'm going to kill you. So just stay out of my way. Oh, do you think she's going to kill him? Yeah, because I don't think he knows what's good for him and he's going to get in her way again. (laughs) I mean, I can't imagine we're not going to see him in book three. No, we absolutely will. We can't be that lucky. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Oh, I do remember now because I I liked that part because um, he basically... Constantine was basically, like, blaming her for what happened to him. He was like, I used to be a man of God. And she was like, none of this is my fault. Like, this is totally on you. Do not blame me for you having this, like, obscene obsession with me. Also, this is all happening while there's two warring armies and a firebird lighting Moscow on fire. (laughs) And this guy, like... Like, the fact that they're having this conversation at all, and then the fact that this conversation's happening in the midst of all this other chaos is hilarious to me. And what a despicable human being that when Cassian was like, oh, um, I'll give you your revenge against Vasia, but all you have to do is bring me this little girl, bring me Maria. And he does! Like, he was the one who gave Maria to Cassian, to the sorcerer, because he, like, wanted revenge against someone who he had no reason to want revenge against who had done nothing and i feel like he had it felt so similar to what he did with her stepmother in the forest Mm -hmm. i mean it was slightly different goals but it's like okay stop trading people (laughs) to get your hands on master yeah like just yeah but okay that was another thing i still like didn't fully understand so he cassian revealed that she was a girl, embarrassed her, gave her, like, no choice but to say yes from a protecting her sibling standpoint to marrying him. Oh, right. But then, like, he never actually asked her to just marry him for no... Like, it felt like he was planning to before the race or something. He kind of was like, you didn't give me a choice. So, again, I just don't understand the timing of some of this. Why didn't he wait until he'd had a conversation with her instead of embarrassing her in front of everyone? But whatever. Yeah, very good question. And then he changed his mind back again, like... Why did he have to do all of that if he didn't even need, if he was going to switch for the niece? 
Well, I think he wanted Bastia to be his bride slash life source. And then... Bride slash I don't remember the timing, but... <laughs> at some point, he finds that she's wear, already wearing Morosco's necklace. So she's already bound. And I think maybe that's when he was like, ugh, you're already taken. I need someone else. Yeah, I get... I mean, you're right. He didn't find out about the necklace until right before... Or, you know, after he made his proposition, after he had revealed that she was a girl and all that stuff. But... It also he had told her that she just had to remove the necklace and technically she did so it still felt like kind of like yeah that's true it felt like this well thought out plan that he like abandoned within two seconds <laughs> <laughs> I mean he's a sorcerer he he's been around for a long time maybe his brain's not quite right I don't that's know true. the other thing that I was gonna say real quickly about Constantine was I am a little bit worried because of what the Bannock told him. Oh, yeah, what did he say again? So the little bannock in the bathhouse is, like, going on a prophecy <laughs> kick where he's just, like, telling everyone their future. And he tells Constantine, you will be great among men and you will only get horror of it. So I'm thinking Constantine is going to be elevated before he falls. And I don't really know what that but means. Why? I think he's going to become bishop, maybe. Mm-hmm. But then I don't know how he's going to get horror from it but i did like the bannock's prophecies in general because i thought some of them were pretty interesting like he tells maria that she's going to grow up far away and that she'll love a bird more than her mother (laughs) do you think the bird is going to be the firebird yeah okay and I think, I think Maria is going to be like a central figure in the next book. I hope so. Yeah. And I feel like she's a easier person for people to rally around. Like even though the siblings are yeah. now on each other's side, I feel like there's so much hurt there versus like protecting or helping an innocent child is an easier thing to like all team up for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. But then what was Vasius from the last book again? Because there was something about the night flowers or whatever, or the sun... The moon. What yeah, is you'll gather snowdrops at so night. So that part happened. And Die at your own choosing. Ooh. Did, did that happen in this book with... When she took the necklace off? Or any... I feel like she, like, went to visit Death's realm multiple times. <laughs> she did, because she, like, dragged Olga back from Death. And then when she walks into the fire, or, you know... Right! Oh my gosh, right. She, like realizes she needs to talk to Morosco and she knows the only way she'll find him is if she's about to die. Well, and she needed to talk to Morosco because she needed to, like, she could have just gotten out of Dodge and saved herself and saved her niece. But she was like, no, I have to save all of Moscow because we need snow. And the only way I can do that is if Morosco's there. And the only way I can see him is if I'm dying. So it makes sense for me to run into the fire. And I love how someone, she's like, someone I ran into was like, you're going the wrong way. And I just kept going. (laughs) But I don't know if that counts. Yeah, I think that counts. That means she died by her own choosing. Yeah. Right? Okay. And so then, and there was a third part, which I think is going to happen in the last book, which had something to do with the horse. Oh, what did it say? Die at her own choosing and weep for a nightingale. Oh, okay, no. so I guess it's not necessarily the horse, but I kept... It's going to be the horse. Something's he's going to die. When they reminded me of that, I kept waiting for something to happen with nightingale. Oh, no. I don't want nightingale to die. I love him. Did we talk about Nightingale the Robber when you were talking about your Russian folklore stuff before? Okay, so I didn't know this because as we know, I don't know much about Russian characters that are common, but yes. So I guess there is a hero in like this classic Russian epic known as Nightingale the Robber. 
Does he steal porridge? He lives in a nest, which is in either nine or 12 oak trees. Okay. He's the head of a family and has three grown-up daughters, and them and their husbands all live there. And he stalks, like, this road from Chernigov to Kiev. Hmm. No matter whether travelers go on horseback or on foot, he'll whistle at them, and his whistle is, like, frightens people to death, I guess. Whoa. But then there was some warrior who ended up defeating him and took him to the Grand Prince and whatnot. But I guess he was sometimes described as a man, sometimes described as a winged avian half-man. And in general, it had to do with, like, striking fear in travelers on their journey or something. But I was like, ooh, Nightingale. But that doesn't – I'm curious how this is going to relate – yeah. It's called The Legend of Sullivy. Like, how is this going to relate back to the horse? Or does this relate at all to the horse? I don't know. Because so far, there aren't really many parallels between that story and our horse. I know. And it's like, but I'm, I'm curious how Nightingale, the bird, and the horse, like, are, is he going to turn back into a bird at some point? Or like, how is that aspect of it going to play out? I think he will turn back into a bird. Ah, maybe that's what happens. Maybe he turns back into a bird and she cries because she loses him as a horse. I would be okay with that. As long as he doesn't die. I don't want him to die. I don't want him to die either. He's been such a good little horse. He's been a great... um, Sidekick. Humor relief. Yeah. Yeah. Was that your research for this week? Yeah, that's like all I did. That's kind of a lie. So I like read up on a lot of little things. Mm. So the... The tarum that they kept referring to, I was a little bit curious oh, about yeah. that. So um, it refers to the separate living area occupied by elite women. Um, and it was also like a part of the house. So the upper story of a home or castle. Hmm. But in general, historians use it to discuss this whole like social practice of women leading secluded lives mm. in this time period. So... Um, not only were like noble women or royal women or women of elite status confined to separate quarters, but they also had all these societal rules, which we saw somewhat here, where they like weren't allowed to be in the public eye, so they had to travel in like closed carriages and wear heavily concealing clothing. And the only men they were allowed to socialize with were their immediate family and things like that. So awful. Basically, I just, like, researched a couple of little things. But they also, I saw something that said that this, the tarim is frequently alluded to in folklore, too. Oh. So there's one story that immortalizes the lonely daughter of the czar who sits behind three times nine locks. (laughs) She sits behind three times nine keys where the wind never blew, the sun never shone, and young heroes never saw her. Jeez. So, yeah. It was, it sounds like a very... (laughs) terrible life sounds like being in quarantine (laughs) and again it's so funny how you know in some ways you would think oh if you were like being poor in this time period would be terrible but then also as a woman you at least like being locked yeah it would be almost worse to be have status I I don't know how they stood it and that's the other thing I was thinking about I was like how is Vasya the only woman in this book so far who was unsatisfied with her you know, place in life. Like, how were women not, like, throwing themselves out of these towers and being like, you have to get me out of here? Like, I'm surprised there weren't more women who rebelled. And maybe there were, but it just doesn't seem like there are many in this book, at least. 
Yeah, I mean, again, you have to imagine... I think in some ways she was unique because she grew up with a lot of freedoms. Mm. Like, it's interesting that Olga, who grew up also, like, kind of in the wild forest, (laughs) (laughs) didn't feel more of that, too. Because if it's all you know, I think it becomes harder to question or challenge things. For sure. And that's not to say that no one does, but... Like, I bet it would be, like, rare or hard or, like, I mean, pro- I don't know for sure, but I could imagine, like, if you rebelled, like, your husband was allowed to beat you or yeah. something. You know, I mean, like, I feel like practices like that probably weren't completely uncommon. And, it- and if you didn't have anyone else who had a role model who, like... If you can't imagine anything ...did else. it and had a successful outcome, it's hard to imagine yourself doing it, I'm sure. Like, if you don't see other people like you, you can't... You feel like you're wrong or that yeah. you're you know, strange for having these thoughts in the first place. Well, and even Vasya, like, I don't think she ever could have imagined doing anything she did as a girl, right? She had yeah. to disguise herself as a boy in order to even, like, it was like an alter identity, yeah. an alternative identity. She couldn't just, it wasn't like, oh, I'm a girl, but I'm just not going to conform. It was like, oh, I'm going to pretend to be a guy so that I don't have to conform. Very true. But yeah, I mean, it, it's depressing. And I'm sure there was more rebellion than we know about, but mm-hmm. it, it, it's hard when society is structured to... Yeah. And I guess this, uh, there were probably other women who were like, yeah, I just, I don't want to, like, deal with some of the stupid stuff, and I want to have kids and hang out with my girlfriends, and this is great. <laughs> I'll stay in the tarim. That's fine. <laughs> also, it has no relation to harem. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Even though the, they kind of seem similar rooted words but they're not it was just kind of like a woman's space yeah so it was kind of like it was their actual like usually was this upper floor in a castle or whatever Mm -hmm. that like that's where the women hung out with each other and Mm -hmm. only their male relatives could visit them there but it also refers to this whole like social like the women in seclusion idea in this region Mm -hmm. yeah because they said that um Olga's daughter would not leave the tarum until she was married, something like that. Yeah, which again, like, when I was reading, like, part of me was like, oh, okay, that's, they're telling us that fact, so that's a fact, but I was like, that seems crazy, and then I was reading up a little bit about, like, that was just, like, what being a woman of society meant back in the, like, 17th century or 16th century, which I think this book is actually a little bit earlier than that, so I'm not entirely sure if it was common that far back or not. Yeah, this is medieval Russian. Oh, I guess it's derived from the Greek word teremnon, which means dwelling. And the origin of the practice is a mystery because so many of the written records from this time period, like there's not a lot (laughs) of written records from this time period. And I also, this was just in the back, but um, so Moscow, I think of as like, oh, this is like the big city, right? Because that's currently the Mm -hmm. capital of the Russian Federation. But at the time, like in the 12th century, it was like not a big city. It was like Vladimir, Tvar, Uh Suzdal, and Kiev were bigger cities until after the Mongol invasion. Oh, okay. So I researched warrior monks. Ooh, cool. (laughs) Because I really liked, I really liked the character of Sasha. And I just thought it was really fascinating how Sasha was a monk, so he had taken these religious orders. And I think Brother Rodian, we don't really see him that much, but I think he is also a monk. 
I was trying to remember, when did we meet him the first time? Because he went to visit the village or something in book one, right? But when did that happen? Ugh, I was trying to remember, too, and I couldn't remember. Okay. That makes me feel better, though. Yeah. I also had so much trouble keeping track this whole book of, like, the map of Moscow and, like, mm. where Olga's castle was compared to where the ambassador was compared to where the Grand Prince was. It was confusing for me. I didn't even try to keep that straight in my mind. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. So, okay, yeah, so Sasha and his buddy both know how to wield a sword. <laughs> yeah, Rodian. Yeah, and I just kind of thought that it's it's such a strange concept to have people who are devoted, who have devoted themselves to serving God, and yet are also well-versed in how to wield swords and how to kill people and how to wage war. Well, especially you think of monks to some extent as like, living in isolation or at least more first introducing them in this book it's like they live out in the middle of nowhere together and like raise their own food and it's peaceful and quiet exactly yeah and also just like if you're devoting your life to like upholding the rules of god like not killing (laughs) is like probably a pretty big one on the list you would think yeah are Um, we supposed to like forgive each other instead of like right it's not it's turn the other cheek not (laughs) chop off the other arm (laughs) Exactly. So I was just like very curious about types of warrior monks out there and if there were many. And I found a couple. So there's two from Japan and one from Russia that I found. Okay. So in Japan, there were actually organizations of warrior monks. So there were two types of Japanese warrior monks. The one was called Sohei and the other one was called Yamabushi. And the Yamabushi were kind of like wanderers, like they were very solitary and they would use like this solitary lifestyle to try and obtain like spiritual powers. And the the Sohei were monks Mm -hmm. who lived a life devoid of song, wine, or women. What, What was the first one? Song. Oh. Yeah, so they like deprived themselves of like all the fun, quote unquote, normal pleasures of life. Yeah. Um, okay, so the first Japanese warrior monk is Benkei. Okay. So Benkei, his MO, his his jam was he would stand at a bridge and he would duel any samurai who tried to cross it. Any particular reason for this just because? <laughs> yeah, because he wanted to collect their weapons. Okay. So if he won, they would have to give him their weapons. And according to legend, he collected... 999 swords this way. Wow. But his 1,000th duel was against um, a man named Minamoto Yoshitsune who defeated him. So Benkei decided that he was going to follow him and become like his kind of second in command. Um, so and... if he lost, did he have to give all of his weapons? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that makes sense. I mean, I could see in some ways it's like, why would you follow the person who beat you? But then on the flip side, it's like, oh, you're even... He wants to learn from him. Yeah. Yeah. You're the only person who's like a worthy adversary or a worthy teacher. Yeah. So unfortunately, the man who defeated him, Yoshitsune, he was betrayed by his brother and he was ousted from the clan. Both of them became outlaws. Um, And then four years later, they found themselves trapped in a castle surrounded by their enemies and Yoshisuni stayed in the castle to commit seppuku, and Benkei waited outside, and he took up his old position on the bridge to guard the entrance of the castle. And 
they said most of the enemy troops were too afraid to approach the bridge and the ones that did he destroyed immediately and they say that he killed more than 300 trained soldiers wow yeah that's that's why you have a bridge though right they can only come one at a time well benkei did not make it through that last battle though so um he eventually was overcome and he was so full of arrows that he apparently died standing upright wow um because so many arrows were filling him he couldn't fall back on them and this is known as the standing death of benkei he was 34 that's a tough way to go so then did his buddy actually commit the i think so okay um the second one is tajima so this warrior monk was known as tajima the arrow cutter because i guess he was in a battle where oh the battle of uji and he loosed 24 arrows they said they were like lightning flashes he slayed slew he killed 12 of the enemy soldiers and wounded 11 more um there was one arrow left in his quiver but he flung away the bow tripped off the the quiver and then he took off his shoes and ran across the beams of the bridge he stood across and he killed six men but the bridge broke while he was fighting on it Um, That's a bad day. (laughs) I know. He had 26 arrows sticking out of him by the end of the battle before he was finally killed. Wow. Yeah. So you may or may not know this, but they are still monks. Is there any, like, they only fight if, are they, like, defending the faith or are they just, I mean, that one guy was just defending a bridge, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they were fighting against the Tayara clan. So it was, like, a warring clan, it seems like. Okay. Um, Okay. Okay, this next one is a Russian guy. Appropriate. So this is Alexander Parasvet. So he was a Russian Orthodox monk who fought, this is so interesting, he fought a duel, like, like a, he fought in single combat with the Tartar champion, whose name was Chilibley. Ooh, that is interesting. Yeah. So he became a monk at the Rostov Monastery of Saints Boris and Gleb, and he had a friend named Rodian. What? Yeah, and do you remember that Sasha's name is Alexander? Yeah. Yeah, so Alexander and his friend Rodian, the two warrior monks, basically joined up with Russian troops who were approaching to fight against the Mamai invasion, which do you remember when Shulablay came at the beginning, he was like, General Mamai is going to come and he's going to mow you down. So they were fighting against the Mamai invasion led by Chalubi, the Tartar leader. I think Catherine Arden did some research. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. That's awesome. I mean, I knew she, like, had read up a lot about, like, she was interested in Russian folklore and Russian stories and stuff. But it's so fun to figure it out as someone who doesn't know it beforehand. Totally. So they fought together in the Battle of Kulukovo. And it opened with single combat between Alexander, the warrior monk, and the champion of the Golden Horde, the Tartar, Chilube. And they killed each other on the first run. Wow. So they both died immediately, like they slew each other at once. And that was really problematic because there wasn't, like, it didn't sway either side of the battle. So, like, if the Tartar champion had fallen it would have given the other team an advantage and vice versa. And so since they both, like, took each other out, 
like lose lose basically they were just like <laughs> okay we're on even playing field here so they both lost their best people and got no advan- no one got an advantage from it. exactly <laughs> um so the battle this battle took place under the command of prince dimitri of moscow of course <laughs> i love this i know isn't this so cool so it was a very very long battle the tartars eventually were overcome so the warrior monks won the warrior monks won under the so prince dimitri essentially was victorious and the russians chased the tartars for over 50 kilometers but the losses were pretty severe so a third of the commanders were killed in action Grand Prince Dimitri survived, but he was wounded and fainted from exhaustion. His entire escort died, um, and he was barely found among all of their corpses. That's kind of like what happened to him this time, too. Wasn't he down to one guard when When Sasha saved him? And that's the only reason why he was pardoned, because he, like, you know, essentially saved his life. Um, So, yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting that... That's fascinating. It was really based on a true battle. I'm so glad that we're doing research with this series. I mean, I'm always glad because it's I fun. Know. But there, there's so many things that bring it to a whole other level of like, I'm, I'm so impressed with Catherine Arden. Me too. Absolutely. Um, and this is like a little bit later after, this is after the battle. So there was another Tartar invasion against Dimitri. There was the Khan Toka... Toktamish. So he captured and burned down Moscow and forced Dimitri to accept him as his sovereign. But in the century that followed, Moscow's power essentially rose and um, they were able to take back control over the other Russian principalities. And then the Russian servitude to the Golden Horde officially ended in 1480, a century after that epic battle. Wow. That's a long time. Yeah. But pretty cool. I, I love historical fiction. Um, so, and, and I wouldn't call this historical fiction per se, but, um, I just love that there is some basis in historical facts because it's pretty cool. Well, again, I mean, we definitely have the fantasy elements, which I like, but I love that they're also like folklore mm-hmm. elements. So we're even learning about like the amount I knew about Russia in the, before reading this book was <laughs> very little. <laughs> yeah. Basically nothing. So yeah, it, I'm learning while I'm enjoying the story at the same mm-hmm. time. Agreed. What was your favorite scene? Ooh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to beat the race. Mm-hmm. Or when the Firebird became the Firebird. Yeah. I just really want to see these horses, because these horses yeah. just sound so magnificent. They really do. Um, okay, do you want to talk about the next book? Yes, I do. I'm sad we only have one more book. I also saw that Lonnie Taylor reviewed the back of the book online, which makes Ooh. me even happier, because I love Lonnie Taylor. Oh my gosh, to get a review from her... That would be incredible. She said, it isn't just good. It's hugged to your chest, straight to the favorite shelf, reread immediately good. Wow. High praise, indeed. So this one is called The Winter of the Witch, and we're going to read up to part four for next week. Okay. Okay. All right. Following their adventures in The Bear and the Nightingale and The Girl in the Tower, Basia and Morosco return in this stunning conclusion to the best-selling Winter Night trilogy, battling enemies, mortal and magical, to save both Russia, the seen, and the unseen. Now Moscow has been struck by disaster. Its people are searching for answers and someone to blame. Vasya finds herself alone and beset on all sides. The Grand Prince is in a rage, choosing allies that will lead him on a path to war and ruin. 
a wicked demon returns, stronger than ever and determined to spread chaos. Oh dear. Caught at the center of the conflict is Vasya, who finds the fate of two worlds resting on her shoulders. Her destiny uncertain, Vasya will uncover surprising truths about herself and her history as she desperately tries to save Russia, Morosco, and the magical world she treasures. But she may not be able to save them all. Okay, so first, what demon do we think is coming back? <sighs> Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, he's just a mere human. <laughs> so it has to be a demon that we've seen before if he's returning, which is kind of annoying i wanted another villain i mean i still think we will get another villain or at least i still think whoever sent the midnight maiden or whatever what's her name again whatever lady midnight lady midnight whoever sent her i think is going to reveal themselves in the next book and they even mention it in the back something about she's going to find out more about herself or where she came from or something i still think there's more to the story because of how a couple of things like if she had had time to answer that question or whatever there were a couple of lines like that about her grandma and i like i think we're gonna learn i think there's still gonna be new characters and surprises but yeah is it gonna be the bear or is it gonna be the sorcerer well i still think it's Baba Yaga. <laughs> because well, I mean, it says the winter of the witch and Baba Yaga, Baba Yaga is a witch. But so is Vasya at this point. Mm, oh, yeah. But no, I hope we do see her. But she wouldn't be the returning demon. I hope she's in the book. But who do you think is the returning demon? Wouldn't that have to be either the sorcerer or the bear? I guess. Or are those even considered demons? Know. No, I do hope we see Baba Yaga. Are there any other big russian folklore elements that we haven't seen that we talked about before i don't know enough about russian folklore i don't think yeah but you're right baba yaga is in like every story i know i want to see her like flying around with her mortar and pestle that's what she does apparently do you think she's going to be related to vasya is that do you think maybe when the because it feels like she comes from a line of witches right maybe they're all descended from her I don't know. And Morosco, is he dying? What's his he, deal? I don't know what's up with him. <laughs> he is fading, and he's going to be the Frost Maiden. He's going to die because he can't love Vasya, but he, like, wants to, and he's going to, like, sacrifice his immortality to be with her, and then he's going to die. That's my prediction. <laughs> okay, I am looking at the cover right now, and I see what I believe is a firebird. I see what looks like a witch standing on a rock, and I see what looks like a ton of soldiers in the background. Is the witch holding a mortar and pestle? She's holding a spear or a stick. Oh. She's facing away towards the soldiers. Oh, I see it. Okay, okay. Yeah, I have no idea. Especially after the story you just shared. Like, I love these history elements. So I am kind of glad that we're still seeing some of the, like, it doesn't feel like a chosen one story, but we are still getting some of this bigger world, like, battles and princes and some of that Mm -hmm. on the side. Yeah, it's like, it's a great fusion of reality and fantasy. I'm loving that aspect. I love it. Yeah, me too. Especially because it's folklore I don't know well to start with. So it feels really fresh to me. Agreed. Do you want a joke real quick? I would love one. So I looked up a horse joke because I was obsessed <laughs> with the horses and this half of the book. Okay. This is so stupid. <laughs> what did the horse say when he fell over? Ouch. <laughs> Help, I've fallen and I can't giddy up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. stupid. 
I love it. Yeah. <laughs> also, apparently, um, TikTok has decided that I'm obsessed with horses. Have I told you this? No, but it doesn't surprise me, but go on. I don't know how TikTok figures out its algorithms, but it somehow thinks that I am really obsessed with horses and nothing else. So the only videos I get on TikTok are horse videos. And I'm not really upset about it because it's kind of cool. But like, (laughs) literally, that's all I get are are videos of like horses running around in pastures. It's probably because of the random things that's in you Google for For this research. Anyway, if you guys want to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us by emailing us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at mnktalkya. And we would love to hear from you. And we'll read to part four for next week. Oh, I can't wait. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.